tonight, in just a moment, I'm going to introduce you to Adam. Um, but just wanted to let you know, tonight our issue is about the environment. And this wasn't his topic. We chose it a while back. But um, this idea of how green should a Christian be. And I did speak to Adam a bit about this on the phone some weeks ago. Um, because when we think about green these days, it has different meaning, right? Like we know green is kind of code for the environment. But we also know that green is a political party as well. And so, like everything else in the world, um, the environment is something that has become very politicized. But if we put that aside for a second, we just think about this um, from a Christian standpoint. At the very beginning of the Bible, God creates the whole world, and he puts humans there as a caretaker. And, uh, and he said to Adam, and not, not this particular Adam, but another Adam, um, you know, he said, I want you to, to care for this. And, and to his wife Eve, I want you to, to watch over this. So that leads me to believe um, certain things that as Christians we're meant to look after things, that we should not be polluting, um, that because we love one another, we shouldn't be overusing our resources, and all of these kinds of things. So regardless of the politicized environmental issue, there's some things that as Christians that they should be fundamental to the way we think. Adam's done some thinking on this, and we're going to bring him up now because before he talks to us, I just want to have a chance to meet him and get to know him a little bit better. So Adam, do you remember the first time I ever met you? Uh, yes, I was walking my then six-month-old, she's now two, Jemima, I was walking her along Waratah Street trying to get her to sleep, and I bumped into you and thought, let's have a chat. Yeah, that's it, we're neighbours. So where do you actually live? Rose Street. Rose Street, okay, so how long did it take you to get here tonight? It took a good two minutes. Oh, right. um, my, my, wife, my wife Emma and I are possibly the, uh, the, the closest... Uh, people to live here. That well, that's right. If we got, got you in our church, church, you would be our neighborhood family. So tell us about your family, because they are here tonight. Yeah, so uh, my wife Emma and I have two beautiful daughters, Jemima and Bethany. Jemima's two, and Bethany's eight months. Um, we're both, uh, Emma and I uh, are both Christians, and we weren't high school teachers uh, five years ago. Um, I was a lawyer and Emma was an academic, but now we've both fallen into high school teaching and we both love it very much. And you may know some people sitting here to, from our congregation other than me. I, I know Rolf. Um, I worked with him for a year at a school in Summerhill, Trinity, um, and I've met a few of you for a few minutes, um, and that's the extent of how well I know you. Um, but I... I love the unity that the Spirit gives us without otherwise knowing each other. That there's a connection that Christians have that we don't necessarily have with our non-Christian family members. It's beautiful. We can speak to each other honestly. We can build each other up even though we uh, don't know each other relatively well. And it's a lovely thing. Uh, so thank you for inviting You're me. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming. Now tell us a little bit more about your work. Um, yeah, yeah, what what does a, a work week look like for you? Yeah, so I approached the headmaster of Trinity Grammar as a corporate lawyer, and I said, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I want something with more emotional depth and less paperwork. My fellow teachers hate it when I say that, but it's true. 
Um, and I want to be involved in the Christian mission of the school because the Christian mission of high schools was very valuable for me growing up. And this particular headmaster took a risk with me um, because teaching's not easy. And he, he had employed a few non-teachers before and had a go. He, he told me there was one doctor uh, who he employed who quit by recess. Uh, so teenagers can be quite nasty. But I've enjoyed it. I love chatting to teenagers. Um, and I teach legal, business, and Christian studies. And it's good fun. Beautiful. And last question. So hopefully there's some time that you're not working and marking papers and all of that. So for you and your family, what's a, what's a perfect weekend look like? Uh, so a, <laughs> I mean, a they don't exist, is, but, you know, just yes. imagine. Um, a hypothetical perfect weekend would involve Emma horse riding in the day and then us salsa dancing at night, followed by me enjoying computer games and pizza and wine for the rest of the weekend. Beautiful. That sounds very good. Well, I'm going to um, pray for Adam, and then he's going to take about 30 minutes to, to talk to us, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do. Tonight's discussion is going to be a little bit different. You're going to get a little bit more involved than perhaps in previous years. So let me pray, and then we'll let the night unfold. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can call you Father, and that we are your children, that you love us and that you care for us and that you're not a stingy God, that you have put us in a, a big, beautiful world and universe with so much to see and to explore and um, more good things than what we could even imagine or, yeah, or see in a lifetime. Um, we thank you that you've given us the responsibility um, to care for this world, and we confess that we often fail. Um, tonight, Lord, we pray you'll speak through Adam. We pray that you will challenge us in our minds and our hearts um, yeah, to, to re-engage with this question of um, our role in, in the world that you've given us and the, the environment around us. And we just pray that the discussions tonight will also be very practical, that they will bear fruit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Right. I hand it over to you. Thanks, Jeff. Got a bit of water underneath there. Down and up. Great. Thanks. Well, thank you, Chad. And um, thank you, Croydon Park at 10, for inviting me to be one of your SALT Forum speakers. Um, it's an honour to be here to open the 2019 SALT Forums with How Green Should a Christian Be? Uh, forgive me, but I've retitled the talk to Following Jesus on a Warming Planet, and I hope that that will be clear by the end of the talk. I have a 30-minute talk followed by a break, and then you're invited to send in questions using the QR codes. I have 30 or so suggested questions that I've uh, received from giving these talks at a high school level. Some of the questions are a bit childish, but I hope you can see the wisdom or indeed the fear on them. On the right side of the handout are the action items, and they'll make more sense at the end of the talk. So, um, uh, global warming and climate change, to me, is a bit of an accidental hobby. Uh, born out of my love for science uh, from high school. So I've always enjoyed studying chemistry and physics, and I was taught about climate change and non-renewable, unsustainable resource use at school and the need to take global warming seriously. 
and then it kind of fell off the radar for me. Politically also, I would say that I'm naturally conservative, and particularly in the last few years, there have been some political controversies that concern me greatly uh, uh, from a Christian perspective, and my uh, friendship with certain people associated with the Greens has been strained, uh, but for reasons that I hope will become clear to you during this talk, I still persevere with those relationships. Also, when I was working as a corporate lawyer, again, accidentally, I was involved in a few transactions involving coal companies and electricity companies. And I learned how much coal is burned just to power Sydney. It is staggering. So to power Sydney, we burn two tonnes of coal every second, which powers furnaces like you wouldn't believe. That involves a constant train network and logistics network of a constant supply of coal, and this is something that is reflected all over the world. We actually don't have much of a shortage of coal or oil or gas, so in New South Wales and Queensland alone, we are the Saudi Arabia of coal, and there are still hundreds of billions of tonnes of coal buried underground for us to dig up and burn if we want to. The question is, should we do that? What are the consequences of that, and what do Christians in particular uh, bring to this problem and this discussion? This topic is frightening. To face the facts is, I would put it to you, terrifying. Indeed, there are many non-believers who can't face the truth of global warming because it's too scary. And that's where we can come in and make a critical difference. Because if you believe in the resurrection, you have an unshakable hope. And you have something that unbelievers don't have that is going to be very much needed in the 21st century. So that's my primer to you. I think I have your attention. Let me begin. So, climate change seems to be a difficult conversation to have. It's one of those controversies that we're just not making progress on. Why is that? Well, it's a very easy topic to ignore or diminish. And I've identified four reasons why it's uh, an issue that you'll have an intrinsic motivation to ignore or diminish. Firstly, it's politically controversial. So it is seen as an issue that the green left have hijacked and that to engage in green left politics is to engage in partisan, tribal, nasty politics. And so it's not possible to engage in a political discussion without becoming partisan, left-wing and sucked into that vortex. There's also a fear of hypocrisy. Because when I start talking about the causes of global warming and carbon emissions, burning coal, oil and gas, you'll quickly realise that the electricity and transport that we use to power modern civilization necessarily involves burning fossil fuels. And you and I are part of modern society, which means we're guilty, we're involved. Now, there are some political controversies on which we are not as involved, but we're definitely involved in this one and ethically implicated. And it's not a nice feeling. There's also the information situation. Maybe 
maybe there isn't a consensus, maybe it's complicated. Maybe we need to wait for our leaders to be settled on the facts. And it's inappropriate to panic until you can actually see the iceberg, to refer to the Titanic analogy. And maybe our market forces and libertarian capitalism is taking the situation where it needs to go anyway. I'm seeing solar panels, I'm seeing electric cars, I'm seeing the low carbon economy come forward. So maybe the economics is taking care of the problem for me. All of those four positions are sadly flawed, I'm sorry to inform you. Now we also need to ask some fundamental questions before we jump into talking about an issue like global warming, because global warming involves perpetrators and victims who are very disconnected from each other. And so we have two fundamental questions that are linked to our worldview that will shape how you approach the problem. Firstly, do you think we live in a generally fair and just world right now? Is the world mostly fair now? And are truly evil events like World War II and the Holocaust inevitable? If you say yes and yes, then that means that you see the world as being mostly full of good people, bad things mostly happen to sinners, and occasionally truly evil things happen that are unavoidable. I think Job and Ecclesiastes would contradict these things, not to mention our Lord being unfairly crucified. And so the Christian should be coming to these two questions with no and no, which should completely change your relationship to the world, to wealth, and to those who suffer. And that will be relevant when it comes to global warming, climate change, and ecosystem collapse. Now, what if this whole problem is just a boutique issue? What if it's a side issue for the tree-hugger Christians to worry about? Unfortunately, I put it to you that global warming and ecosystem collapse is the same for us as the Nazis were to 1930s Christians. If you were a Christian living in Germany in 1930s and you said to your friends, I'm not interested in politics. I don't support the Nazis, but I don't oppose them either. I'm just not interested. I just want to keep getting on with ministry and gospel work here in my church in Bavaria. I've got my 15-year ministry plan and I'm not interested in politics. Let's say you said that in 1935 in Germany. Well, I got bad news for you, Mr. Bavarian Minister in 1935 Germany. Politics is interested in you and it's coming for you whether you like it or not. That would be his unavoidable context. Now, not every Christian in the last 2,000 years has had to deal with the Nazis. That was his particular context as he followed the crucified and resurrected Lord in his context. And we are following the crucified and risen Lord in our context. And our context is the global ecosystem collapse that has been caused by globalization and modernity post-World War II with our technology explosion. The harm that we are doing to our neighbors, to ourselves, and to God's good world through degrading the habitability of the planet is an unavoidable context for the church's mission and discipleship today. It cannot be avoided. Degrading the habitability of the planet 
means damaging the planet's ability for humans to live on it, which is like being agents of uncreation and undoing Genesis 1. This is distressing, but we have special hope. We can resist toxic and Babylonian patterns of thinking, and through the Spirit and the Word, we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have an unshakable hope because God has given us an unshakable yes in Jesus. We are not afraid of the truth. Wherever it leads, and with Jesus, we can go wherever He leads us in order to love Him and love our neighbour. And that's where we're going right now for the next 10 minutes. What is global warming? To answer that question, we need to ask ourselves, why is the planet not a cold, dead rock floating in space? The reason is because of our atmosphere. A thin layer of gases, of which a trace element are greenhouse gases, such that the sun's energy, rather than hitting the surface and bouncing off, hits the surface, bounces around for a while, and then bounces off. And the sun's energy is held for a while, which leads to the water cycle, precipitation, photosynthesis, and life. That's why the planet, or the globe, is warm, because of greenhouse gases. And we've known that for over 100 years. The relationship between the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the geosphere and the hydrosphere is a constantly dynamic relationship. And the climate has changed for millions of years. But what about the last 10,000 years? The last 10,000 years, the climate has been unusually stable, as in the average temperature of the planet has not changed very much. Now, the average temperature of the planet is an unusual concept, so let me just quickly run this by you. Somewhere on the planet, it's day, sometimes it's night. Sometimes it's summer, and sometimes it's winter. But from a planetary perspective, the planet is receiving the same amount of sunshine basically all the time. And so if you had 10,000 thermometers all over planet Earth, some in the north, some in the south, some at day, some at night, what would be the average temperature of every reading? The average temperature of every reading would be about 14 degrees Celsius and that doesn't change. It doesn't change because the climate doesn't change. Very quickly, unless we do something about it. So the last 10,000 years, Earth's climate hasn't changed. The average temperature has stayed pretty much constant. And in that period of time, all advanced human civilization since the dawn of agriculture has taken place within that period of climate stability. However, in the last 300 years, we have unleashed an unprecedented amount of stored energy stored from the dinosaurs. So before 300 years ago, society was sustainable and renewable. What did ships run on? Wind. Where were factories? Next to rivers and they were hydro-powered. 
But then, then we, we discovered some black rocks and black sludge under the ground that we could burn and would unleash far more energy than wood. And that was coal, oil, and natural gas. And we've burned over a trillion tons of it. We are now a force of nature. We've added greenhouse, uh, carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And the question is, how much is the atmosphere going to warm and how quickly is it going to warm? Since the pre-industrial age, we can measure with our thermometers that we've warmed the average temperature of the planet by one degree Celsius. And the question is, how much more is it going to warm? How quickly is it going to warm? How bad is that? And is there anything we can do about it? Well, these questions were asked mostly by Europeans in the 1990s, uh, but increasingly by other nations as well in the 2000s. And the consensus that stuck around about 2009 was that two degrees Celsius of average global warming is the agreed threshold of danger. Every single nation on Earth, including Saudi Arabia, the United States, and Australia, everyone agreed that we should avoid global average temperature increase of two degrees Celsius. There's two problems with two degrees Celsius. It turns out that two degrees Celsius now, under modern science, is dangerously high and would cause significant dangers that uh, uh, we thought would probably happen at 2 degrees, but would probably happen at 1.5. The other problem with 2 degrees Celsius is that we are probably going to blow past 2 degrees global warming in our lifetimes. It's too high to be safe, and it's too low to be possible. Right now, I imagine you are feeling a bit afraid. That's when I want to remind you that Jesus gives us a spirit of bravery so that we can love our neighbour no matter what. The other problem with the two degrees Celsius global warming level is there are significant time lags uh, in the warming between releasing greenhouse gases and the warming occurring. We knew about this two degrees Celsius problem in the 1980s, and because the oil industry is the most powerful and corrupting force on Earth and has facilitated more wars in the last 70 years than any other industry and is worth over a trillion dollars, they stopped any progress which means we're going to go past two degrees Celsius, and until 2009, we didn't even know what that meant. But in 2009, some English scientists were approached and asked, where do you think global warming is heading? And they said, four degrees average global warming. And then they were asked, what does that mean? What would that look like? And they said, we honestly don't know because we honestly didn't think that we'd do that to ourselves. But their commissioners said, we want you to do a study about what four degrees global warming would look like. And they did a study. It's complicated. The effects of floods, droughts, and storms on our political systems and human systems and our food systems is complex and it involves models and uncertainty and guessing. And so here's a three-word summary of what four degrees global warming would look like. For you, if you're interested in the detail, here are the scientists' statements. And if you ask me, the scientists, they're a conservative bunch. They lack poetry, in my opinion. And they use what I think are dumb phrases that don't connect well. For example, the World Bank, when they reviewed the report, said that a four-degree world would exceed 
the adaptive capacities of many societies and natural systems. Exceed the adaptive capacities, i.e. break them. Uh, Dr. Rachel Warren said that the limits for human adaptation are likely to be exceeded in a four degrees Celsius world and the ecosystems would not be preserved. Um, Professor Kevin Anderson said that thinking about these implications are so significant that the only adaptation strategy is avoidance at all costs. It's actually pretty alarming. Uh, he continued that a four degree Celsius future is incompatible with organized global community. And Professor Hans Joachim Schellenberger, Schellenherber, said the difference between two degrees of global warming and four degrees of global warming is human civilization. The carrying capacity of the planet is below one billion. From a basic physical level, this would mean sending the world back to how hot it was in the age of the dinosaurs. It would involve significant sea level rise, which is not so significant when the sea is still, but is very significant when a storm, a storm smashes through. Drought for 40% of, almost permanent drought for 40% of land that is currently inhabited by humans, hundreds of millions of climate refugees, and approximately half of all life on Earth going extinct. We are an extinction event. Unfortunately, it looks like, at the moment, if we unleash certain feedback systems, then we might even go past four degrees global warming. For example, as white sea ice melts, it creates blue ocean. Blue ocean absorbs more heat than white sea ice because heat bounces off white sea ice. And there is a number of those other feedback loops. That means we're potentially heading to six degrees Celsius of warming, and if those feedback loops are unleashed, and all of them are combined together, say with the trapped methane in the permafrost of Siberia, then by 2300, the planet could become Venus. And half of the inhabited land would be too hot to live on, i.e. not air conditioning bills would be inconveniently high, but you would die of hotness if you went outside. Will human civilization survive this? Maybe. Maybe there'll be a Christ church in the caves and there'll be Christians singing hymns in underground, test tube-fed, climate-controlled caves. But their world would not be anything like our world. And if they have history books, in my opinion, they'll have just one name for the people of the 20th century, the burners. That's what we'll be remembered as. They are our future neighbors, and if we can love them, we should. Our present course leads to certain catastrophe. Global warming isn't just bad, it's extremely bad. To stop this, climate emissions need to peak within five to 10 years and decline rapidly thereafter, or at least that's what the scientists were screaming during the period of 2007 to 2013. 
But after 2013, when it became clear that President Obama was not going to achieve any of his major climate initiatives in a Republican-dominated Congress, climate scientists literally started to get depression and stop talking. Emissions did peak briefly with certain energy politics in China and their factories, but they've risen again. I imagine that before you came in today, you didn't believe a lot of the things that I just said. But if the things that I just said are true, then that means that in effect, if not in, an, in intention, but in effect, you were in denial about the scale and severity of global warming. The problem is that if you just absorb the truth, then the truth will swing you over into despair. Despair is not good for a number of reasons. For example, if a forest is definitely going to burn, and you could make 10 bucks from burning it early, then burn it early. If a fish species is definitely going to go extinct, and you could make 20 bucks by just dredging the ocean and drawing it out now, then do so. So despair is not only painful, it's dangerous. And it's wrong. It's the truth that swings you out of denial, but we need something to stop us from swinging into despair. And as far as I can tell, there's only one group of people who have something powerful enough to stop the truth from swinging us over into despair. And it's us. And the thing that stops us is the gospel. It's our resurrection promise from the Lord Jesus, the promise of forgiveness and life everlasting, of new bodies and a new creation, which means we're not afraid of anything. We're not afraid of literal fire burning our bodies because we know that our Lord will resurrect us and redeem us. So global warming doesn't destroy our worldview and our sense of self. That's going to be very useful in the next hundred years because we will be empowered with the truth and with Jesus to love our neighbour and they will desperately need it. So what can we do? What can we do? Well, firstly, we need to grieve. We need to let the truth hit us and groan with the Spirit as per Romans 8. We need to pray. We need to pray our lamentations and we need to ask God to guide us in all of the, the pain and the sadness and the fear um, on a personal note, I, my favourite thing that isn't a human is food. I love diversity in food. I think it's beautiful. And food diversity will definitely be damaged by global warming. What is currently available at Woolworths will be impossible to stock. Just, just take tuna. Get ready for tuna to be $3,000 a kilo. I imagine that that's upsetting for you tuna enthusiasts. It's upsetting for me too, uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So grieve for the decreation of our planet uh, and the pain and the suffering it'll cause. But we have hope, 
and so we are empowered to love. We love for Jesus, because of Jesus, like Jesus. You put your trust in the resurrection and love your neighbour in light of the confident hope that you have, and you can make a difference. Global warming will not destroy the planet, it will just destroy human civilization as we know it. I know that sounds strange, but there will be neighbours to love, there will be a God to love, and it won't destroy all life on earth. Therefore, there will still be good work to do, no matter what. So, there's grieving, but we've got to move on from the grief and then comfort others in their sadness and fear, because there will be others who are more vulnerable than us. We need to learn from the experts. I can connect you to a few of them. And we need to speak up about climate change, particularly to politicians. There is a a censorship, there is a, it's viewed as impolite to talk about these issues. Maybe you're one of those political activists if you talk too much about it. Well, we have to push past that. You make it clear that you're not uh, a political partisan hack, you're just a concerned earthling. And you're not gonna stay silent anymore. The causes of global warming, the, the causes of our denial, are not simply consumption. It's not simply consumption. And it's not simply ignorance either. It's actually a whole lot of forces combining together that form part of our world. It's not just consumption, it's overconsumption. It's greed. It's not just ignorance, it's apathy. It's imperialism and war. It's racism. It's mostly the global north burning the futures of the global south. It's false self-righteousness, particularly green self-righteousness. We're all in this together. You can't just put some solar panels on your roof, get an electric car, and then you're green. You'll never be green. You'll never be green unless you're an indigenous nomad who grows his own food, and none of you can do that. And it's ageist. It's the old, destroying the futures of the young for our present convenience and consumption and preferences. So it is deeply ageist. We need to resist all those things, and I actually don't know exactly how you are going to do that, but I'm putting them on your heart. And instead, embracing true peace, true repentance, and true contentment. As I've said, you'll need to push back against political tribalism. We need to learn from the greenies. They've been in this space for decades, even if they are part of the secular green left alliance, which we don't like very much. Just like we listen to Muslim doctors, we're going to need to listen to these non-Christian greenies, many of whom are Christian, by the way. But that, that block, that group, has wisdom, and we need to tap into it. And then, we need to embrace and celebrate a low-carbon life, both individually and collectively. You can't do this on your own. What does that look like? Ultimately, it looks like buying less stuff than being more content. What stuff in particular? I, I can't tell you. It's just a general buy less, be more content, particularly stuff from overseas, because it takes more pollution to get things from overseas here. When it comes to our food, there is a food type that causes more pollution and deforestation than others, and it's meat. And trust me, I don't like saying that. 
I like meat. It's meat, particularly meat from big animals, beef, pork, and lamb. Eating less meat and eating more vegetables does help. It helps preserve the habitability of the planet. Less flying, more training, more busing, and more biking helps. More community, more sharing, less individualism. Again, I don't know what that looks like exactly for you. This one's important. Ending the indulgence of political apathy. If you've ever heard someone say, I don't care about politics, what you're really hearing is someone saying, I don't need to care about politics. Indigenous Australians can't say that. They can't say, I don't care about politics, because they're not able to say, I don't care about politics. I'm able to say I don't care about politics because I come from a wealthy family and I'm privileged. But we all affect each other's lives, so we're all involved in politics, particularly in a democracy. It's true that if you live in a brutal dictatorship and you have no ability to affect wider civil society, then fine, tune out from politics. The average North Korean has absolutely no hope of impacting global climate policy. But if you live in a democracy, you can help. When it comes to buying stuff, there's pretty much only one thing that it would be great if everyone bought as much of it as possible, go nuts, buy it, they're awesome, solar panels. Solar panels are fantastic, buy them, that would be super. There's not much else that you can buy your way out of this problem. For example, buying electric cars is a bit of a problem because most of the pollution in making a car goes, uh, most of the pollution of a car goes in making a car, including making an electric car. Buying a new petrol car is worse than buying a new electric car. But buying a second-hand petrol car is significantly less polluting because most of the pollution's already been done. And that's just one example of it being very difficult to buy our way out of this problem, except solar panels. Go nuts, buy heaps of them, they're awesome. And then there's your investments, your superannuation, your share portfolio. If you have a general superannuation fund and you haven't uh, elected any investment option apart from the general investment option, then you are 10% invested in the Australian coal and gas industry, which means you're 10% invested in and you're 10% profiting from an industry that is just like the weapons industry and the tobacco industry and the pornography industry and the nuclear, weapon, uh, nuclear uh, industry, that's a bit complicated. But and you can divest from that industry. You can call up your super fund and say, am I invested in the fossil fuel industry? Yes. Can you divest me? Can you uninvest me today and put me in a fossil-free fund? Yes, we could. Good, do it. It takes five minutes. And then lastly, get ready. Get ready for a century of suffering and injustice as warming worsens. It's going to hurt. Jesus will be with us every step of the way, and we are definitely going to need it.